All right, happy Mother's Day. Give our moms a big round of applause. Come on, show them some love. I hope you're doing something really, really loving and caring for your mom. Uh, Proverbs 31 and verses 28 and 29 says this, her children praise her and with great pride, her husband says, there are many good women, but you are the best. Did your husband tell you that this morning? Ladies, yes? Some of you guys did it, you did it. In addition to that whole uh, chapter in Proverbs 31, God goes on to command, instruct, encourage, tell us to honor, care, love, respect our mothers. In multiple books of the Bible, in Exodus, it says it again, in Leviticus, many more times in Proverbs, in uh, Matthew, Ephesians, and Colossians. It goes on and on to continue to tell us to show honor to women and honor to our mothers. But clearly the lens that God was looking at women through was different than the lens that men were looking at women through at the time all of these passages were written. Here's how we know that to be true, because at the very same time, women were not allowed to be educated. They were often not taught to read or write. Women had virtually no legal rights and were often seen as property of men throughout the world. They were definitely not allowed to own any property or any possessions. They couldn't inherit land from their family. Women were marginalized in social life and practically uh, disappeared in the public life. They were expected to do little more than stay home and take care of the family and the affairs of the household. Women were excluded from any religious practices and withheld from fully participating in worship. And women were often forced into arranged marriages against their will and expected to be blindly subservient to their husband. But thank God that was thousands of years ago. And we've clearly done a much, much better job with women, kind of. Turns out we're really slow learners. With the addition of the 15th Amendment to the Constitution in 1870, blacks were given the right to vote, but it wasn't until 50 years later that women were given that same right. And believe it or not, that right was delayed in large part because only about 4% of women supported their right to vote. Because by that time, they had been convinced that they were incapable. They did not have the emotional or intellectual margin in order to care about their home and care about lofty things that happen in the country and the world. So they didn't need to vote. Interestingly, though, the U.S. saw fit to make Mother's Day a national holiday in 1914. That was six years before they would even let mothers vote. Seems like an awfully long time to wait for a right that should have been women's all along. Sadly, women in Saudi Arabia did not even gain the right to vote until just eight years ago. 
For centuries, most women in the world could not, as I said, inherit land or buy land or own land. When they got married, even in the US, all of their property became their husband's. All of their money became his. Any money she earned in a job was automatically his and women were not even allowed to sell property without their husband's permission or open a bank account without their husband's permission. In Mississippi of all places, it would be the first in the US to pass the Married Women's Property Act, which allowed women for the first time to own property on their own, to keep everything they earned and to have financial independence. That was in 1839. It wasn't until 124 years later, however, that the US passed the Equal Pay Act, which said you could not pay women less simply because they were women. Now these are landmark moments in the law, but our adaptability in culture and society in our homes and religious circles, we're not even as quick as the law is to recognize somebody's worth and value. It wasn't until 1990 that Augusta National, where the Masters Golf Tournament takes place, until 1990 that blacks were admitted into the club. That's terrible. Here's what's crazier. It wasn't until 11 years ago that women were admitted in. Now, I know this seems like a really strange way to celebrate moms on Mother's Day. Women, it's really crappy for you. I promise there's a point to all of this. That somehow we have managed to develop within our culture, within our homes, within our minds, within our religious circles, the ability to see things in black and white that permits us to be able to say that we're honoring, respecting, valuing, uh, um, um, uh, affirming somebody and showing them respect and love that they deserve while on the other hand, behaving in a way that does the exact opposite of all of those things. Scripture says to love and value and care for and to treat with respect women, yet in biblical culture, it was rarely done. It was poorly done at best. In America, we say for centuries that we valued women and we honor them and we make a national holiday to recognize their worth, but still, privately in golf clubs, they're not allowed to be a part of a golf club until just 11 years ago. And let's be honest, would they have even allowed that to happen if it weren't for the relentless pressure of organizations or groups saying, how can you exclude 50% of our culture from this. The truth is that we see people differently than God sees them. Let's start by admitting the fact that, now I'll be honest with you, I don't particularly care about what people outside of the church are doing. Here's why, Paul himself says, it's not really our job to judge the world. We only really get to use the measurement that God has given us to judge each other, to judge within the walls of the church, to judge within the community of the church. So I really don't care how the world sees marginalized outcast people. 
Ones who we say we value but clearly don't with our behavior. I don't particularly care about that. What I care about is followers of Christ, we should be doing it better. We should be doing it in the way that God does it. Listen, God sees people with generosity and kindness, with gentle compassion, with limitless mercy, with grace-centered acceptance. You and I have figured out a system in which, even as followers of Christ, that we can figure out ways to limit people's access to those things. The very qualities that Jesus says we should carry We figured out a way to make people perform in a particular way or act in a particular way or be a particular way in order for them to get from us what God gave to us so freely. We'll use gender to make somebody feel less than. We'll use race, color, nationality, their disability, their wealth, or their poverty. We'll make their age an issue. We'll make their political party for sure an issue because you can't be this party and be a Christian. You can't be that party and be a Christian. Whether they have a certain education or lack of that education, their title or their position, their marital status, their sexual orientation, the sin we think that we get to judge them for. We use all of those things and anything else that we can imagine to say, yes, 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 we love them, we honor them, we care for them, we accept them, but they don't have full access to the grace, kindness, forgiven, mercy, acceptance that we got so freely from God when we are at our most broken state. Women have stood as an iconic symbol of being marginalized and outcasts Yet at the same time, we've praised them publicly and and said that they are equal and much of our behavior contradicts what we say with our mouths. Grab your notes if you don't already have them out. If I choose to see every outcast through the lens of gray, and here's where that lens comes from, is that if God has his way, He'll take these margin, these black and white positions. You're either this or you're that. You're Democrat, you're Republican, you're male, you're female, you're black, you're white. You're married, you're single, you're divorced, you're gay, you're straight. Whatever it is that we use to put somebody in a category, God comes in with his hand and he smears it and he blends it and he says you're more than any of that. He sees through all of that. The Bible tells us that God does not judge people the way we judge them. He sees through the gray. If I choose to see every outcast through the lens of gray, then number one, they don't need to prove their worth. If you're wondering, like, would it have been better or at least easier to be a Christ follower at the very, very beginning, like right when the church started, right? When, when you knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew Jesus, right? Oh, bro, my friend's dad, he was, okay, he did the taxes for one of the disciples' oldest cousins. Anyway, they were like, Jesus was so awesome. He used to tell jokes. He he told me, I can't remember it right now, but like that would have been a cool time to be a follower of Christ, right? Because we would have been so much more committed and so much more passionate and we would have gotten it right, right? Not really, it doesn't seem. (laughs) 
It seems that people just kept being people, even as followers of Christ, it, it, it didn't undo the peopleness of them. They were very peopley still. They still used gender as a way to marginalize and they still used ethnicity or nationality. The Jews could not stand Samaritans. The Jews could not stand Gentiles at all. They believed that they were superior racially and religiously. They believed that women did not have equality. They believed in social class, that wealth represented God's favor and poverty meant that you were in sin. If you were sick or diseased or had an infirmity or a disability, you were definitely paying for sin in your own life or if you were born that way, then sin from your parents or generations before you were being punished. But Paul goes out of his way as a former Pharisee, as a former religious scholar, as a former expert in actual law and religious law. He does his very best to destroy all the categories, all the disruptors, all the things that we use to keep people separated from God, all the things we cling to to make ourselves feel better than other people. He affirmatively discredits these categories. Everything that's been taught and accepted culturally and religiously Listen to this verse that we've read throughout this series, Galatians 3, 28, he says, in Christ's family, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew or non-Jew. You can't do that any longer. Slave and free, male and female, he purposely mentions three things that culturally and religiously were still being used to divide the very body of Christ. Among us, you are all equal. So for people that say the Bible is pro-slavery or pro-misogyny, it's simply not true. These things existed and were practiced in biblical time, but if you look, there was such an aggressive pushback on all of this. It instructed slave masters to treat their slaves as equals. You were then no longer really a slave. You benefited in all the same way of everyone else in the household. That is, we are all in common relationship with Jesus Christ. In the eyes of God, there is nothing that matters about you more than whether or not you are in relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we look at people, the only thing we should care about is, do they know God yet? And if not, I wanna be the person that helps introduce them to the love and the compassion, to the forgiveness, to the mercy, to the kindness, to the empathy, to the gentleness of Christ. And if they are, then I have no reason to judge them or marginalize them or believe that I'm superior to them in any way because of any human standard. I want to tell you, you and I have no right, no right biblically, and that's all that matters as followers of Christ. We have no right biblically to separate anyone from the same mercy and the same generosity that we received from Christ when we did nothing to earn it. Number two is this. If I choose, I'm, I'm, I will tell you, I'm preaching better than you're responding. So <laughs> I'm going to stop and take a drink of water because I earned it. My throat's going dry. If I choose to see every outcast through the lens of gray, then number two, they can count on me to celebrate their potential. So there's a passage in scripture that I think is just 
tragically undertaught, undertalked about. I'm the first to admit I have not given this nearly enough attention it, it, or talked about it with frequency. It's really, really good. Um, and, and I'm going to read it to you, Luke 8, 1 through 3. Soon after this incident, Jesus preached from city to city and village to village, carrying the good news, the gospel. He was now representing this new covenant between man and God of the kingdom of God. And he was accompanied by a group called the 12. These are who we know to be the disciples. And also by a larger group, including some women who had been rescued from evil spirits and healed of diseases. There was Mary, called Magdalene, who had been released from seven demons. There were others like Susanna and Joanna, who was married to Cusa, a steward. He ran all of King Herod's kingdom financially. He managed all of his affairs. He was like his executive assistant. And there were many others. By the way, Jesus later appeared before King Herod. These women played an important role in Jesus' ministry using their wealth to provide for him and his other companions. There's a couple things I really, really love about this. Luke does this extraordinary job of handling this information the same exact way that Jesus would. He starts off by saying, and Jesus went and he was spreading the good news and he was accompanied by the 12. That's it. Doesn't give names, doesn't get those who were known as the 12. And then he says, and there was a much bigger group of women who were all delivered from sickness in some way. They were uh, outcast in some way. They were demon possessed. They were the, he, he begins by saying, and I need to highlight that a bunch of women traveled with Jesus. Women that should have been home, women that should have been taking care of their families, women that should not have been seen in public, women that didn't have any role in the, in the, in the realm of the rabbi, in the teaching, they didn't have any responsibility, should not have been, and he says, and Jesus was supported by these women, and he begins to name them specifically, to give them a name in scripture, to give them a name in the, in the, in the logs of this history of the Messiah of the world is to give them honor that would be repeated for century after century after century. And he doesn't even give names to the men. He makes sure to take the time to honor the women. And then he highlights not only were they women and they were outcasts because of that, but they were pariah because they must have done something wrong to be diseased. They must have been paying for something in their life or their parents' life. They were inferior because they were diseased or they were demon possessed so they were spiritually broken. They had made themselves available to demonic forces. But here's the most important part and this is sort of the hidden part. Is that Jesus interacted with them, he spoke with them, he touched them and he healed them when no one else would go near them, when no one else would give them the time because Jesus saw beyond all of the things that we use to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, to make us feel worse about other people. He went past all of that because he saw the potential that they could be world changers and that's exactly what they did. There was no mention of the wealth of men. There was no mention of the support of men. It was just these women who made it possible for Jesus and his disciples to be able to move from town to town preaching the gospel and being supported financially. It's remarkable 
that Luke does this during this time. Amen. Yeah, you can clap for that. But it was not just women who were outcast and pariah. Many men were as well. Let me read you this quick story in Luke 19. When Jesus got there, now I'll set up the context that he was traveling through Jericho and he was teaching and he was walking the streets and the huge crowd followed Jesus and, and uh, there was this little, little man. He was notoriously short. It, scripture actually takes the time to talk about how short he was and his name was Zacchaeus and he got ahead. He heard Jesus was coming. He saw the crowd. He was too short to see Jesus among the crowd. And so he ran ahead on the road and he climbed up in a sycamore tree and he wanted to see Jesus from there. And as the crowd passes by, this is what happens. And Jesus is among the crowd. When Jesus got there, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down, get down here. I want to stay with you today. Now when they would come for, this is like, this is most of our worst nightmare. You invite somebody for lunch and they stay all afternoon and they stay for dinner and then they stay all evening. There's, there's actually in German, in, in German culture, there's a, a saying that translates, when you're ready for people to leave your house, you say what translates to English, I've been visited enough today. And that's your way of saying, I feel very visited. Get out, right? <laughs> Jesus says, I'm coming and staying at your house. Zacchaeus hurried down and gladly welcomed Jesus. Everyone who saw this started grumbling. This man, Zacchaeus, is a sinner and Jesus is going home to eat with him? Later that day, Zacchaeus looked up and said to the Lord, I will give half of my, he was incredibly wealthy. He was the lead tax collector. So not only was he getting a kickback from taxes, but also the kickback from the tax collectors who were extorting people. He says, I will get half of my property to the poor and I will now pay back four times as much to everyone I have ever cheated. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today you and your family have been saved because you are a true son of Abraham. The son of man came to look for and to save people who were lost. He uses Zacchaeus in this moment to show that he sees potential that no one else saw. Zacchaeus had been written off as a, as a thief, as a dishonest man with no integrity, as a betrayer of people, as an extortionist, hated because he was wealthy, but not just wealthy, but wealthy because of money that he had taken by illegal gain. But here's what I love about the story. Zacchaeus was so unbelievably curious about Jesus. It's the people we believe that are furthest from God that are likely the ones most curious to have a relationship with them. But unfortunately, they've met too many grumbling Christians that are there to tell them how bad they are as a sinner, keeping them from understanding the love and the grace of God. And that's what that crowd did that day. They identified him by his wrongdoing. I don't know, maybe rightfully so, maybe he, he deserved all of that, but as followers of Christ, as ones recognize who Jesus is and what his message is, we have to see people in a completely different way. We can't see them through the lens of sin because we have not been by God seen through the lens of sin. The Bible says we are seen through the righteousness of Christ. 
He takes this huge gamble on Zacchaeus. He says, come down, I wanna eat with you. And he does, and he honors him, and he respects him, and he accepts him, and he celebrates him in front of everybody before there was a payoff. Jesus takes the risk and befriends him. He seems to go out of his way. Of all the people in that crowd, he could have called out. He could have called out the most influential, the wealthiest, the most righteous. He could have called out anyone that would not have marred his reputation, but he purposely befriends the guy everybody hates. The guy everybody thinks should be separated from the righteousness and the giftings of God. He purposely calls him by name and says, that's my friend right there. I remember being in Bible college and I had interned for Capital Christian Center uh, down on uh, Micron and 50 near Bradshaw. And, and uh, it was at that time one of the biggest churches in the nation and Pastor Glenn Cole was the pastor. And uh, I went to a very conservative uh, Bible college in the Midwest in Springfield, Missouri. And, and Pastor Cole was on the executive uh, board of the Assemblies of God, and he was also on the board of Central Bible College, and he was considered very uh, um, controversial because he was from California, and after all, we all surf everywhere we go, we're all blonde, and wear bikinis everywhere, and we're very, very liberal. We don't, uh, you know, we don't hate anybody, so that we're very liberal, and um, and uh, he, I had already done my internship and he was getting ready to preach and he stood at the pulpit and he looked up into the balcony and I was in the balcony because I'd been separated from my friends, which happened every semester. You had assigned seats, we would sit together as friends, we would make each other laugh and we would goof around during chapel every single day until the Christian service director would separate us. It only took about three weeks for it to happen and we expected it. We weren't mad at anybody. We are like, yeah, this was coming and I'm surprised it took this long. And so I was up sitting in the deaf section. <laughs> they were like, you would like way up there. And uh, that wasn't a joke. They really was deaf section. And, um, and he looks up and he says, it's good to see my friend Chris Young here today. And I was like, woohoo! I loved, I loved, because I didn't have a great reputation at the school and I wasn't affiliated with anyone important and it was just such a powerful moment for me to be attached to somebody, for his credibility to be linked to him. He little did he know he should not have done that that day to say that we were friends. And that's what Jesus did for Zacchaeus. He honored him and he respected him and he affirmed him in front of everybody despite the reputation that he had with everyone else. And what a payoff. Look at the heart change in his life. Third and finally is this. If I can choose to see everyone, uh, every outcast through a lens of gray, then they can trust me with their wounds. So this is a little, you know, I'm giving you a little context here. In the Old Testament, especially during certain seasons, as God was teaching Israel how to not be Egyptian slaves anymore, um, he used a lot of symbolism and a lot of representation, a lot of allegory, and he made very practical things very symbolic of bigger spiritual concepts. They, remember, they were in captivity for 400 years. They just did not understand what it was to be the nation of God, to be God's followers. And so any discharge of the body, going to the bathroom or anything like that, was considered unclean. It was a representation of sin and how it could soil things. And one of those 
things that represented sin was menstruation. And so women for seven days were considered unclean. If they sat on a chair, they were unclean. If they laid in a bed, they were un- the bed was unclean. It was because that this represented the, the, the stain that sin puts on our lives. So you can imagine how much fun it must have been to be a woman during this time, right? Now I want you to imagine the bleeding never stopping. The belief that people would have about you when you could not find any relief whatsoever. And that was the story of a woman who encountered Jesus in Luke chapter eight. Gavin, you can come back up. Let me read this to you. In the crowd that day was a woman who for 12 years had been afflicted with hemorrhages. She spent every penny she had on doctors but not one had been able to help her. She slipped in from behind and touched the edge of Jesus' robe. And at that very moment, her hemorrhaging stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? And when no one stepped forward, Peter said, Master, we've got crowds of people on our hands. Dozens have touched you. But Jesus insisted, someone touched me. I felt power discharged from me go out of me. And when the woman realized she could not remain hidden, she knelt, knelt, trembling before him. In front of all the people, she blurted out her story, why she touched him and how at that same moment she was healed. And Jesus said to her daughter, you took a risk trusting me and now you're healed and whole. Live well and live blessed. I love this story. It's one of my absolute favorite stories because once again, Jesus interacts with those who were considered unclean. When a leper would see someone approaching on the road, they would have to scream, unclean, to tell them that they were a leper. They were contagious and they were seen to be spiritually and physically, medically unclean. Yet Jesus went up to a group of them and he healed them all, interacted with those who he should not have. And on this day, Jesus heals yet another person who had been marginalized and outcast because of her physical condition, which she had no control over. Because of her gender, which she had no control over. Her plight in life being poor because she had spent every dollar on what I would imagine were men who exploited her knowing they could not do anything to help her but took her money nonetheless for their gain. And because they don't value her, don't even believe she should have had the money to begin with. Here's what's fascinating about this to me is that the woman was as afraid, if not more, of those who had the potential to heal her than she was of the affliction herself itself. She secretly reached out to Jesus instead of crying out like so many men had done in the Bible. She scurried her way through the crowd and got down on her knees and reached through the men and grabbed Jesus' robe believing that just getting near him, just touching a piece of his clothing 
could heal her. She didn't declare her rights as a man or a Roman citizen or any of that. She humbly and fearfully went to him and then she tried to hide herself even after Jesus recognized that power from him had left. She didn't say, oh, it was me, Jesus, it was me. I'm healed. She hid. And then finally, when she could hide no more, I mean, I don't know really who was around Jesus, but his disciples would stay close to him. I mean, it wasn't that hard to figure out. Peter's like, it's uh, all of us disciples and then that lady right there. That's, I'm guessing maybe she touched you. Maybe that's how invisible she was though in that crowd. And trembling, so afraid, so even after being healed, so afraid that she would be chastised or condemned or shamed or ridiculed or cast out and told that she doesn't deserve healing. She doesn't deserve what so many others had gotten from Jesus himself. She fearfully finally admits it was her. And Jesus applauds her. Jesus celebrates her. Jesus calls out her faith and uses it as an example and then he puts on her blessing and favor that she had not had in her life for a very, very, very long time, if ever. And here's my question. How do people in our world become so afraid, so fearful of those who are supposed to be helping them And the answer, unfortunately, can be found right here in church. In the Christian community that those of us who stand to represent the healing and the grace and the compassion of Christ are so fixated on the black and white categories of keeping people where they belong, reminding them of how they failed, reminding them of things that they can't control but yet will still judge them by. How would they ever want to be near Jesus if Jesus looked anything like that version of Christianity? People need healing. They want their wounds covered and soothed and fixed. They're waiting for somebody with the same grace and kindness and gentleness of Jesus to walk by, but instead, we've got idiots on Facebook and on Instagram, morons in our own community, who say they're pastors, belittling and marginalizing, casting people further and further from the kingdom of God. I have never been more ashamed of the body of Christ than I am when I see people driving people from Jesus. It's the same stupid mistake the disciples made when children came to sit on the lap of Jesus, to be touched by Jesus, to give him a high five, to to be near him. And the disciples stupidly tried to keep children away. And Jesus said, it's them. They represent what the kingdom of God is all about. Their innocence, their faith, their trust. They don't know how crappy the world is yet. They don't know how crappy people can be yet. That's who you should be just like. 
We have the power of Christ, but we have to give people their worth and value. They don't need to earn it from us or perform for us. They don't need to prove to us that they deserve to be treated equally or with dignity or respect. God sees them as his creation and that's the only thing we're allowed to see him as as well. Amen. We have the power to celebrate every person's potential long before they ever meet it. What if your spouse said, I marry you today on the condition that by tomorrow you reach your full potential? Divorce would be 100%. Nobody would have the confidence to get married. Yet we commit ourselves to a lifetime of growing together and Jesus saw people and how good they can be when they were at their very, very worst. And we have the power to just humbly and graciously restore health and healing and wholeness and value to people who have been wounded spiritually, emotionally, physically. We have that ability. Jesus said, you've seen me do these things, but I want you to do even more than this. We have the capacity to reach people through our social media and share the grace and the love of Christ. The question would be, is that what any of us are using it for? No, likely we're engaging in some stupid argument about some stupid thing that the media has put out as bait in front of us that helps us click on things and read articles that are a third true and two-thirds nonsense. And we just do all kinds of things to keep putting each other in boxes, including ourselves, so that we can feel better about ourselves. And it's simply not the lens through which God has created us to see each other. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes and just give yourself a moment of reflection and just a moment of uh, um, alienation and isolation from anyone else in the room and any other thing. And this is your moment with him. This is your Zacchaeus moment. This is your woman with the hemorrhages moment. This is your woman who's been oppressed by evil in her life, who recognizes that Jesus wants to honor you. So whatever way you've been marginalized or whatever way you've marginalized another, this is the moment for healing and change. Because even the sin of judging and condemning and marginalizing and casting out people That's a sin that God wants to forgive and restore and cover you and bring the very best out of you and change us so that we can change the world we live in. Christ Jesus, I pray for every single person in this room that if they've been on the receiving end of being cast out, ostracized, marginalized, diminished, belittled, dishonored, disrespected, if they've been made fearful of those who should be healers, lovers, the kindest, 
the most compassionate, the most empathetic, restorers of hope, if instead they're fearful of those of us who represent Christ, make us better representations of you. Make us people who see people through your eyes. And it begins, God, by seeing ourselves that way. Maybe we've been taught that we're nothing more than this. We're nothing more than that. We're nothing more than the color of our skin or our gender. We're nothing more than the poverty we were born into. We're nothing more valuable than the wealth that we can possibly share with another. We're not more valuable than what somebody can get out of us. Maybe we've been made to feel that way and that's then how we see others. Heal, God, what needs to be healed. Convict us on what needs to be changed in our life and guide us on what we don't yet know how to do without you. And that's my prayer for every person in this room. To be the kind of Jesus who loves women and loves the disabled and loves those who are of different ethnicities and loves those who are big and small and gay and straight and Democrat and Republican. Because all we see is their potential for being a kingdom changer, a world changer, because they might know you in a relationship and discover their purpose and for what they were created. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.